Welcome to Uncharted Journeys. I'm your host, Kathy McKnight. If you're like me and you've ever sat back and wondered, how did I get here, whether literally or figuratively, in terms of your professional life or life in general, then you're in good company and have come to the right place. On Uncharted Journeys, you'll hear from amazing women about their straight and narrow, zigzaggy, or somewhere in between paths to success. Today's guest is a content strategy industry powerhouse. She's an internationally acclaimed speaker and consultant and author of two books, Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat, Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap, and Content Strategy at Work, Real World Stories to Strengthen Every Interaction, Interactive Project. Both are absolutely must-reads for anybody in or even adjacent to the content strategy fields. As the principle of Appropriate Inc., Inc. INC, although it could be Inc. INK as well, which she points out, which I love that play on words. A well-known brand and content strategy consultancy based in Boston, our guest has worked with industry giants like Harvard University, Fidelity, MailChimp, and Timberland. She is known for her development of the messaging architecture-driven approach to content strategy and the creation of BrandSort, a widely embraced tool. She has been a featured speaker at prestigious events such as the Content Strategy Consortium and South by Southwest. She's an advisor to Women Talk Design and also teaches in the Content Strategy Graduate Program of H, uh, F.H. Johannium University in Graz, Austria. When she's not revolutionizing the content strategy world, this New York native, currently residing just outside Boston, enjoys painting, exploring museums, and hiking with her German Shepherd Rescue Rex. Welcome, Margot Bloomstein. Thank you very, very much. I'm excited to be here and talk with you. Well, I'm so excited to have you here. That is really the highlight reel. There is so much more that I could have gone into. So maybe you can give, <laughs> before we get into our, our, our starting four questions, maybe you can give our audience just a little bit more background about what it is that you do. Uh, so as you said, I've been working in content strategy for the past almost 25 years. And I guess content strategy has been evolving and changing so much over the past 25 years. So uh, it's been a wild ride. And I love how it has evolved. I love being able to to kind of carve out our different areas of expertise and, and niches for supporting client needs and working with organizations. And, um, and that's always really exciting. And I love bringing that into the classroom too. So now a lot of what I do is teaching, as, as you said, at, at FHO Hanium um, at the graduate level, but also teaching workshops and speaking with organizations about where they need to focus now, what they need to do next to move forward as the industry continues to change, both within and beyond content strategy. Because of course, the two letters on everybody's lips, um, AI, we're bringing that into everything or wondering if we should be bringing that into everything and into every organization and every existing job. And I see more of a need and challenge around content strategy more than ever before to do a lot of the things around getting back to basics and working with organizations on, on the real meat and potatoes of their, um, of their communication goals, of how their brands engage different audiences and I love helping them do that to build trust, to build rapport with different audiences through the different tools and platforms that they're using. So hallelujah on the AI. Robert and I actually just, my business partner, I just did a webinar a couple of weeks ago on exactly that, is that AI starts with a content strategy. 
and so many people, exactly, right? We're cheering, yay, great yeah. minds think alike. Um, <laughs> and that's not why I had you on the show because we think the same, but I, I love hearing that. I love that people are getting around to, and that you're there to help them to realize that this AI is not something they should be fearful of, but it's also not something that they should jump into the deep end with. Uh, without having an understanding of goals and objectives and having a strategy into which it gets interjected into as opposed to the other way around. But I am not going to continue on the content strategy. Not all of our audience are uh, content strategists or even in the content realm. So as I do with all my guests, Margo, if you are ready to go, we'll dig into the first four core questions. Yeah, let's do this rapid fire style. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent. What's the first career you remember wanting to do when you grew up? I was going to grow up and be an artist. I didn't know what type, but um, yeah, that's what I was going to do. And I've heard it told back to me, I think through my mom, that one of the the paraprofessionals, one of the aides in my first grade classroom, I had drawn a picture and given it to her and I signed it and I said, keep it. It'll be worth money someday. <laughs> I love that. Oh my God. Yeah. It's like points for precocious there, kid. <laughs> that's a, you know what? life is not over yet, right? You don't know. Perhaps that is the next big thing. You're going to have some wake up some morning, have an epiphany start. Do you have a preferred medium at this, at this point in your life? You know, I still draw a lot. I usually have my sketchbook with me. And um, usually when I'm looking to kind of work through a problem, kind of how I'm thinking about something or to wrap my head around a new idea, my preferred um, place is usually go to a museum and see how exhibit designers are engaging with the world, see how um, artists of other media are kind of wrangling with and wrestling with the world around them, because usually I can look at their insights and kind of cull from that some perspectives of my own. Um, So I still draw a lot, but over the past couple of years, I've also been digging into watercolor and, oh, Lord, it is humbling and unforgiving sometimes, except then it flows on you and and it's never really set and fixed. And um, it teaches me, it's teaching me to slow down in terms of how I'm looking at literally a visual landscape usually, um, because I paint a lot of what's outside my windows, but um, to slow down, pay attention to the details, and then think hard about order of operations. Like if I'm going to be layering up color, or if I want to get the clouds right in a sky, well, the clouds are going to be negative space. So I'm not painting the clouds, I'm painting the sky and paying attention to how their edges interface each other. And that process of slowing down, looking for the details, and then thinking about how I need to layer things up. Of course, then when I sit back down at the computer, that process and that humbling effect bleeds right into my other work work. And and I love that. So I took up, like so many others uh, during COVID, took up watercolor as well. It was one of those things. Really? That, oh. Yeah. I've always been, I never remember which side of the brain is the artist side and which one is the practical side, but I'm very <laughs> firmly p- cemented on the practical side of things. My sister is an incredible artist. She does um, classic calligraphy and it's spectacular. Mm. But I thought, you know what? I, I'm into, photo- I've always been into photography. Like you with your sketchbook, I always have a camera with me. And I got into paint and I love hearing you say that, that it is humbling and unforgiving, yet the most amazing things can come out of it that weren't foreseen. 
And if you just let yourself kind of go with it, but it is about planning. So for those of you listening who think, oh, I'm not artistic, I'm all about the rules and structure and whatnot, watercolor is the way to go because there are rules and there is an order of operation that you need to follow to, mm-hmm. to really get to where you need to be. So love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think before watercolor, like in, I always took a lot of art classes, like in high school and all. And I, I went to art school for college and um, I think I had only ever worked with more additive media where you would layer up colors and you, you want purple, you mix together red and blue and keep heaping it up if it's, whether it's oil pastel or, or oil paint. And now to be thinking more about, about the negative space and about how how you kind of carve out space for color is and color and form is such a it's such a different process it actually like we talk about brains being plastic and that kind of neuroplasticity i can, i feel like i can feel the effect of that kind of painting in my head yeah and it's not just from smelling the paints <laughs> yeah well because you know not acrylic or not oils you're it's, it's yeah, just watercolor exactly, but, yeah. but it is amazing how it does actually get you to slow down and you can, I don't know about you, but I'll go up to the room where I do my painting and I'll be gone for hours and not realize it. So it's just, it's such a good outlet. I'm curious, who was the first big influence on your life? Was there an artist or someone or somebody maybe, you know, closer to home that you look back now and go, yeah, can credit some stuff to them. I've been lucky enough to have a lot of good mentors. I don't know that I've always done the best job of pausing and thinking, okay, what is it that I want to learn from this person. What do I not want to learn from this person? I think that's more, that's probably more like the kind of thing that you wrestle with as you, as you get older and are working with a greater variety of people, because, you know, all bosses teach us something, not always good stuff. But when I think back early on, my parents have always struck a really good balance. I think my mom is excellent at creating opportunity for herself. And when I was a kid for me, um, whether it was seeking out kind of a a class or something or, um, or art supplies that really fed my creativity or bringing me to a museum. And my dad, if my mom carves out opportunity, I think my dad is really good at embracing possibility. He has always been a creator and somebody that, um, can work with a lot of different raw materials, whether it is fiberglass or woodworking or like he and my mom, they built their house together, everything except for the electrical wiring where she was like, no, we need a professional for this. <laughs> um, but uh, I think he's got always gone into different problems, assuming he will be able to fix it or figure out his way through it. And I think that that kind of confidence coupled with optimism always made me feel the same way too. And then as I got older, uh, my art teacher in high school, Karen Rosasco, who is actually an internationally known watercolor artist, when I was a student um, and wanted to, was thinking like, oh, what are different careers in the arts? She helped me discover a path into design, into graphic design, communication design. And then when I said, yeah, I think this is, this is what I want to study in college. She helped me put together my portfolio and then identify the right program that would teach me problem solving skills and the way to engage with clients and start to dig into what at that time we were starting to call user experience design and um, 
and then move through that process into user research. And I think that foundation early on, um, that's stuff that I still draw on today. I love hearing how you took something that most people wouldn't tie together, right? The the strategy and structure of of what you teach and educate now, but how that creativity fuels that, how regardless of what you're applying it to, there are certain frameworks that apply to what we do. And you can, you can go from one to another and learn and leverage from each of them. Is there a song that epitomizes your career path or maybe one that you're totally, you know, jiving with right now? I think if I had to say like earlier on, (laughs) probably my, my go-to karaoke song, um, you don't own me, Leslie Gore, uh, I definitely think of that in a work context, especially as somebody that has gone from different agencies, been in-house, and then as of about 15 years ago, went out on my own to to form my own thing, to incorporate on my own. I think that idea of that you own your expertise and can bring it wherever you see fit to the kinds of organizations or causes that you want to support or the people that you with whom you want to work and by whom you want to be influenced. That was really formative for me early on. And I love singing that song at karaoke. But I also feel like as I've gotten older, Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now, which is such a, a gut punch. I think she wrote it in her early 20s. And now it's had such a resurgence, of oh, course. Um, I love Joni and, Mitchell. And Canadian, just saying. Yeah. Yeah, Canadian. And she brings so much life into it now at 80 and so much wisdom and maturity that I I love that she has transformed that song and its meaning over time. But I think also her audiences, we take different meaning from it, depending on like the stage of life in which you hear it. And hearing it now, it resonates with me because that idea of of being influenced by one's un- one's impression of an experience versus the experience itself. I think that's how she speaks to us about incorporating your own perspective and whether you, you take a more jaded eye to things or see mm-hmm. what you want to see in life, in love, in a work experience in in friendships. I think that that's a, that's such a, a powerful lesson that maybe you always keep learning over and over through your career and through your life. Yeah. I love that she has had a resurgence with um, Brandy Carlisle. That yeah. that duo just, oh, melts my heart. I'm still annoyed. I'm They were playing at the Hollywood Bowl when I was in LA in December and I didn't know because oh. I would have totally stayed, but that's okay. Okay. Another, that's conversation. <laughs> for day. So what are three words you'd use to describe your career? One that I... I've gotten on reviews and client feedback and going early in my career and now is still enthusiastic. I do tend to wear my heart on my sleeve when it comes to clients and projects because I love the surprises inherent in them. I mean, I think about when I've worked with different organizations and I think going in that, oh, you know, I understand this industry or how how much depth can there be here? How interesting could this possibly be? And then you discover, you get that that kind of slap up the side of the head. And maybe it's from your own palm being like, oh my goodness, of course, there's so much here than I ever realized. Let me dig in and let me tell that story. And it becomes fascinating. And and then it becomes the thing that you talk about at parties and at conferences. And you're like, guess who I'm working with? Or I've actually been working with some clients in that industry. And you would not believe this thing and this. And it's 
fascinating stuff about maybe how an industry works. And I love that. I, I was having a conversation with some colleagues and we were talking about brands with which we each wanted to work. Maybe it was sort of like wish casting, putting it out there. And I mentioned that for, I'll, I'll let them stay anonymous, the uh, director of marketing, I think that was her, her role at the time, for a large consumer retail brand um, that's big in the Northeast. She and I were at the, the same kind of regional conference about a month prior. And um, I was in the bathroom and I realized she came in too. And then as we were both washing our hands, I looked over and I was like, I have to tell you, I love what you're doing. I love what you did with this campaign and this and that. And I related this story. And then the friends that I was sitting with, they busted out laughing. They're like, so you approached the director of marketing in the bathroom? And I was like, I was in the bathroom too. This was totally normal. And we were both like, oh, this is exciting. And um, yeah, I I see no merit in standing on ceremony. I I see no merit in in playing it safe, in not wearing your heart on your sleeve when when there's an organization that you love what they're doing or or people that you love what they're doing or or how they're kind of modeling what's good in their own careers. I believe that you you condemn in private and you praise in public or directly to their faces in the in a bathroom if necessary. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I love that. I'm not sure that I've ever cornered anyone in the washroom, but should the opportunity yeah, present it? I, I didn't corner her. I think I was like, I washed my hands. I got in a paper towel and I, I was sort of on my way out. So yeah, it wasn't I, like, I was I, like, Hey, I need I, to tell you while you're in that stall there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, enthusiasm, I think is one of my words. And, um, and then I would say I tend to be pretty incisive and maybe clarifying too when I'm working with organizations because I think when you're in-house, when you've been working in a marketing department for whether it's six months or six years, you get used to kind of hearing the same messages and seeing how things have always been done and the language can become kind of self self-perpetuating yep. maybe where it loses yep. its meaning because it loses its intent and its action and its possible outcomes. And I like working with organizations as an outside person coming in to say, you know, I'm hearing you say this, this, and this, is that what you mean? And to create those sort of points of, of epiphany by holding up a mirror at maybe a more oblique angle. Yeah, very much the, the whole movement. And I've seen it more and more on, Clarifying. So making sure that we understand as receivers what what people are trying to say, what their intent is, not making assumptions. So, you know, my mantra, is, as my audience has heard me say many times, is seek first to understand. So I try very hard never to assume that um, what I've perceived is actually what it is. If there's any kind of question, then I, I want to make sure. Yeah. And I think that gets back to that idea of humility in our work because when we go in assuming we understand whether it's me assuming I understand an industry or um, assuming I understand a landscape and don't take that time to yeah draw on what I know maybe from you know other organizations with which I've worked and kind of that accumulated wisdom but then take that time to say well how are you different what's really going on here I think that kind of humility is what we gain with with both age and experience. Yeah, absolutely. So 
I'd love to dig into your career. You've been in this space for a very long time. So it's, it's not like you've hopped around being a consultant. We get the privilege of change constantly because we're working with different clients all the time. No, no client is ever exactly the same. It is, it is never cookie cutter as much as that would make our lives so much easier. Um, there's always <laughs> something different that has to be done. There's always, we're always having to amend how we do. So, you know, you talked about la- learning to layer and what you're learning now with the watercolors and the negative space and, and making room for things. I'm curious, was there a defining moment, uh, decision action, something that really significantly impacted the trajectory of your career or maybe how you approached how you worked with clients? Like being, because again, you know, you've been doing what you're doing, but you know, was there something that said, this is what I want to do. This is why I want to be a consultant or something that happened maybe throughout the consulting that you've been doing for the last 20, 25 years that really made you see something different and pivot a different way? Ooh, I don't know that I've had a, a grand pivot so much as maybe sort of like a, a Jeremy Jeremy yep. uh, kind of spiral through my career. Cause I think there are those moments where you realize, Oh, I've been here before. I had a, a very similar experience and I think I know how this is going to play out or how I want it to play out differently this time. Or I, maybe it's, I've worked with this kind of person before or, Oh, I've seen this problem on another team. And this time around, I know how I'm going to address like the necessary educational elements, or maybe I know how I'm going to tee up a certain deliverable. And I think being able to look back and say, I've been here before, it allows us then to take those shortcuts to say, so I don't need to go down this path. Or I know where I can be more efficient with my time and the time of the people around me to get us on a good path more quickly. But I would say for me, the um, those sort of inflection points, I think a big one happened when I was probably when I was uh, before I went out on my own uh, a couple of agencies ago. I, they had hired me to start a content strategy team. So they had had a, a bit of a history already as a mid-sized design agency working in user experience. Um, they had clients all across um, all across North America at the time. And uh, they had, at that time, always taken the approach that the client provides the content, or maybe we'll, we'll develop some frameworks for them to be able to provide it. But they essentially didn't take a very strategic approach to content. So there was no opportunity to to really shape it, to shape the different content types, to act as a, to offer expertise in content design so that it would create more holistically designed experiences for their clients and users and customers. So they hired me to start a content strategy team to develop the processes within it, to figure out how to hire for it, how to sell it, um, and how to integrate it with the rest of the agency. And while I was there, because it was a small team, it started out as just me, we were starting out by first saying, well, what types of projects warrant this focus on content? And I've always been a big proponent that even if you don't have a big budget, especially if you don't have a big budget for an initiative, you need content strategy on it because you've got less wiggle room to make mistakes. You got to get it right the first time sometimes. And I think in that context, it helped me see 
okay, here's how I need to sell the value of this to people that are going to push back on it initially. Here's how I help them see that this is a good idea that maybe can be coming from them, not just from me. Also, it helped me see the value of working across a broad variety of projects at once since there was only one of me and then we hired a couple more people, but there was still only a handful of us. Uh, I had that opportunity to work across sometimes a dozen different projects at once that were all in various states and various um, degrees of completion, but to be able to offer them just enough to do the rest of the work that much more efficiently and effectively. So I think that taught me a lot about patience and knowing my own worth, knowing the the value of the work that I was doing, but then also how to help others to see that value in their own work too. And I think if I hadn't had that experience, I don't think I would be as good at evangelizing for it now. And I think still in many content strategy conferences over the past several years, there have always been those talks and those kind of um, hallway conversations around how do you get other people to see the value in what we're doing? How do you get a seat at the table? And I think that having had that experience, I haven't had to personally wrestle with with those, those challenges quite as much. It makes so much sense. And I love the way you put it that, and, and so many people don't necessarily see that this way is because strategy is often something, regardless of what the strategy is, whether it's a content strategy, a social strategy, business strategy, uh, go-to-market strategy, development strategy, it doesn't matter. Strategy is often seen as this highfalutin, flighty kind of, we just need to, we need to say what we're going to do and we just need to get, get to it. Whereas the strategy very much is that guide. It is your your rock, your framework, your touchstone, or should be, so that when there's a decision to be made and you only have whether, you know, pick the resource, whether it's human resource, whether it's financial resource, whatever the resource is, you can only do A or B. You cannot do both. Like, there's just no way. The strategy is what you should be going back to to help you guide to make the right decision. And it could be that neither A or B is right and that you need a C, but that strategy should be there to help you. And so I love what you say, you know, the less that you have, the more important strategy plays into it. And I don't think a lot of people, even today, you would think they'd know that by now, but even today they struggle with that because they see it as a non-tangential, something that is not concrete where they're not going to get something out of it immediately, right? And the other thing is, is reason why that happens is because they don't share it. If you make it strategy, that that living, breathing team document, then then that becomes your shared experience. That becomes your, well, you can't disagree with what's there. So I'd love to hear about how, you know, obviously that's something that's come to you over the years and decades that you've been working. In your current role today, are you finding people leaning more into hearing and understanding the importance of what you do and what you can offer them? Is it less sales and more conviction now for you? Because you know, that's what they need. Oh, I'd love for that to be the case, but that would be, uh, (laughs) that would be such an anomaly in the current economy, (laughs) right? No, I mean, I think you always have to make the case for yourself, but that said, um, or maybe because of that, actually, humans are fundamentally 
we are narcissistic people. Everybody's favorite subject is themselves, as you know, in hosting a podcast. Um, And we care first and foremost about our problems, or maybe it's the problems of our companies, if you're responsible for a company or the problems of your team, if you're responsible for a team. So there's always that angle of, okay, well, what's in it for me? Let's get back to my problem. Hey, let's do my thing. And I think acknowledging that not as not as a character flaw, but just a state of the state, that enables us as consultants or as people that are selling services to say, all righty, let me fit into your thing. You don't have to care about my thing. Let's talk about your thing because I can help with that. And I think I do think that fundamentally that's what all sales should come down to. That's what all good sales comes down to. And I think in the current economy, so my focus now is around how people use content and design, but primarily content to build trust, because that's where I see the weak points whether it is in how brands engage with their customers and potential customers, how governments engage with citizens, how healthcare providers and healthcare-related adjacent organizations engage with patients or patient populations or public health. The weak points are all around distrust and mistrust and miscommunication. And once we acknowledge that, then we can say, well, there are two parties on on either side of that equation. There's the, if we think of it as sort of like a broad rhetorical arena, there's the the brand or the government or or the healthcare provider on one side. And then the individual, because it's oftentimes a, uh, a one to, or a many to one kind of thing, but individuals on the other side, whether it's a potential patient or a citizen or a voter or a shopper that's trying to make a decision and trying to say, do I have enough information? i.e. do I trust myself or am I getting information from the right sources, i.e. do I trust you Mm -hmm. Um, or where else should I be looking for information, i.e. can I trust the the media landscape or the other organizations and institutions that are affecting and influencing my information retrieval processes. And I try to sympathize with where my audiences are coming from because I think Individually, we've all been in places where somebody doesn't totally buy what we're saying. Maybe they they don't totally trust us because of some sort of past record um, or because they're like, I know people like you or I once had a teacher that looked like you and she did me wrong. For some reason, they they don't necessarily like us, so they don't necessarily trust us. And if you can relate to that, then I think you can relate to where where a marketing department is coming from or where a public health communications official is coming from or a government is coming from to say, all right, let's take this problem apart and now let's talk about how you're going to do that. And I think once we can start saying, let's talk about your problem and here's how, here's what I know to be true about how to approach it, then we can have the conversation about strategy and tactics. And going back to your earlier question around that, I think being able to say, well, we got to get the strategy right. We need to know what does the end goal look like? What does that idealized vision for the future look like? Now we can pedal back from that and say, all right, if that's success, how do we measure that success? What do we have to do to hit those success metrics? 
now we can start going back further and further into the, if we know the what, then we can figure out the how and the tactics. And that's where we can get creative with budget and timeline if we need to. What first? Absolutely. The what first. What are you solving for first? If you don't know what the problem is, regardless of whether whether it's business related, whether you're trying to figure out how to get the freaking aphids off your tomatoes. Yes, I had that problem last year. Or how to get, the, <laughs> get how to get the cloud in the sky in your in your watercolor to look like a cloud in the sky. You've got to understand what you're solving for. So I love that you talk about that. And I I often talk about uh, any of my clients listening will know that they've heard the WIFM from me more, you know, what's in it for them? What it what is it from their yeah, perspective? Yeah. What is it? What's in it for me? But not about you. It's about them. So I, I absolutely adore that philosophy and that approach. And it's something that we can all apply, not even just to work, but it's, it's our lives as well, right? It's, it's about, you know, if you're, if you're sensing friction, figure out the why. Figure out where the friction is coming from and then address it or don't. That's a choice. But you got to know, you got to recognize that it's there first, Right. I could continue this conversation yeah, yeah. For, for, for ages, but if you weren't in the content strategy space, what would you be doing? Is there something, is there, is there an alter ego Ooh. to Margo where, where money and environment and, and time and things were, were not the constructs that restrict us, but where you could do anything, be anything, alter ego? You know, I feel like on this career path, I've gotten to sees a lot of those possibilities. It's been a whole lot of ampersand. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, you, you know, when you see a fork in the road, grab them all. And I've got quite the silverware drawer to show for it. Um, I, I've had dreams of like, would it be fun to be a teacher in a small enough school district where I could be both an English and an art teacher and kind of combine learning about communication on on both sides of the brain, maybe. Nice. Um, and uh, I love that idea. Or, um, yeah, or there's always uh, opening up a dog park. I don't know. I just love the idea of being surrounded by lots of dogs. That would be fun, too. Yes. Oh, yeah. Just, well, maybe you have a <laughs> school that has a puppy room, right? And then you have the yes! best of yes! both worlds. <laughs> But I love that. Yeah, I, I all love the life drawing is only of dogs. Yeah, I like there it. There you go, right? <laughs> um, but that idea of of combining English and art as a form of communications, I mean, that's a that's just a course that should be in all schools. There you go. That's your next book. There you go. We just we just did it. And I, you know, I think that's that's kind of what if we think of communication as problem solving. That's what design is about. When I was studying design in college, it was design as problem solving and picking out the the medium, determining if it's two-dimensional or three-dimensional. We weren't using necessarily service design as a term then, but we were talking about it. That's the tactical stuff. That's, that's in more of the details. And I think even as our tools change now, like we weren't talking about AI five years ago, but we were using AI Every time we we were dealing with online glossaries or um, online assistance, we were using AI. The tools change, but the the thinking doesn't necessarily need to. Right. Yeah, it's a good point. 
Lord knows everybody's talking about AI and this new thing. It's like, mm, not so new. It's been around for a while. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you've already given us such great, great advice. I've already called out a few things, but for our listeners, maybe particularly the women in our audience, what would be your best piece of advice, whether it's life, career, happiness, whatever you'd really like to share? I think surrounding yourself with, with smart people, that's choose your friends, choose your partners well. And um, that's what gives you continuing opportunity and continuing support to pursue those opportunities. Yeah, exactly. Surrounding yourself with positivity and, and not always, uh, I like how you put it with, with smart people. So people that will challenge you as well, that it's not just you know, yes, you're awesome. Yes, you're great. It's like, do you think maybe that was the right decision that you made back there? Or (laughs) did you want to talk about that one a little bit more? Somebody who will give you a differing point of view, I think is really important as well, because life is filled with um, challenges and opportunities and being able to look at it, you know, similar to what you said, service design is about looking at something from every possible facet, right? And if we surround ourselves Mm -hmm. with people who encourage us and enable us to to challenge and consider from different points of view, I think it always ends us back in a, or ends us up in a place that's, that's maybe better than we were when we started. So excellent, excellent advice. So our audience, this has been amazing, Margot. Uh, our audience, where can they find you? Where is the best place to connect with you? Do you have any speaking events coming up? Um, social web? Sure. Yeah. So you can always find me uh, via email, margo at appropriateinc.com um, or on LinkedIn and um, at appropriateinc.com, you'll see upcoming talks. It looks like over this coming spring, I've got some travel coming up and doing some um, really exciting guest lectures that I'm looking forward to because getting to engage with students around this material, like I, I do love obviously working with, with organizations on subjects of trust, but getting to engage with students around it in in journalism and media studies and content strategy and design, that is thrilling because I want them to know this is important early on. I want to plant those seeds so that they can get a get a run on germinating. All right. Well, I'll be sure to include um, links and whatnot in the show notes. Margot, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for today's conversation. I absolutely adore uh, your thought and your philosophy and approach to learning and evolving and and looking at things differently. To my audience, thank you for listening to Uncharted Journeys with me, your host, Kathy McKnight. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Margot and learning about how taking a layered effect to what you do, whether it's art, whether it's work, whether it's something new can really teach you the different intricacies and how to get it right and how to see things from different points of view. So if you're keen to hear more amazing stories from amazing women, then you can head over to unchartedjourneys.net and listen to some of our other episodes. You can also sign up for our newsletter as well as check out the links and resources in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, enjoy the journey. Rose and flows of angel hair And ice cream castles in the air And feather canyons everywhere I've looked at clouds that weave But now they only block the sun